The Most Holy Incarnation Part 1 Mary Espoused to Joseph Joseph was the third of six brothers. His parents dwelt in a large mansion outside of Bethlehem. It was the ancient birthplace of David, but in Joseph's time, only the principal walls were in existence. His father's name was Jacob. In front of the house was a large courtyard or garden, and it was a stone spring house built over a spring whose waters gushed forth out of faucets, each of which represented some animal's head. The garden was enclosed by walls and surrounded by covered walks of trees and shrubbery. The lower story of the dwelling had a door but no windows. In the upper story, there were circular openings, over which ran around the whole top of the house a broad gallery with four little pavilions capped by cupolas. From these cupolas, a view far into the surrounding country was afforded. David's palace in Jerusalem was provided with similar towers and cupolas. It was out of one of them that he saw Bethesby. Above the center of the flat roof rose another smaller story, likewise crowned by a tower and cupola. Joseph and brothers occupied that last story with an aged Jew, their preceptor. The latter occupied the highest room in the story, while the brothers slept in one chamber, their sleeping places separated from one another by mats, which in the daytime were rolled up against the walls. I have seen them playing up there, each in his own separate space. They had toys shaped like animals, like little pugs. Their preceptor gave them all sorts of strange instructions that I could not understand. He laid sticks on the ground in various figures and stood the boys in them. The latter stepped into other figures, which they had formed by rearranging the sticks. They laid sticks also in various positions, as if for measurement. I saw, too, the father and mother of the boys. They did not appear to trouble themselves much about their children, for they paid very little attention to them. They, the parents, appeared to me to be neither good nor bad. Joseph was perhaps eight years old. He was very different from his brothers, very talented, and he learned quickly. But he was simple in his tastes, gentle, pious, and unambitious. The other boys used to play him all kinds of tricks and knock him around at will. They had little enclosed gardens at whose entrance there stood on pillars covered in image, images like swaddled infants. I often saw similar figures on the curtains of oratories, those of Anne and the Blessed Virgin, for instance. The only difference was that Mary's picture held in its arms a chalice above which something arose. In Joseph's parental home, these images were like swathed infants with round faces, environed by rays of light. There were many such pictures in Jerusalem, especially in the olden times, and also among the decorations of the temple. I have seen them in Egypt also, and among the idols that Rachel purloined from her father were similar figures, though smaller. Many of the Jews had swathed puppets like them, lying in little chests and baskets. They were intended to represent the child Moses in his little basket. The swathing signified the binding power of the law. When gazing at these figures, I used to think, 
The Jews honor the little image of the child Moses, but we have the images of my child of the child Jesus. In the boy's little gardens grew bushes, small trees, and plants. I saw that his brothers often slyly trod down and tore up the plants in Joseph's little garden. They always treated him roughly, but he bore all patiently. Sometimes, when kneeling in prayer in the colonnade that ran around the courtyard, his face turned to the wall, his brothers would push him over. Once I saw one of them, when Joseph was thus praying, kick him in the back, but Joseph appeared not to notice it. The other repeated his blows, until at last Joseph fell to the ground. Then I saw that he had been absorbed in God, but he did not revenge himself. He merely turned away quietly and sought another secluded spot. Outside and adjoining the garden wall were some low, small, low dwellings. In them dwelt two elderly, veiled females, as is often the case near the schools. They were servants. I saw them carrying water into the house. The domestic arrangements were similar to those of Jochum and Anne's house. The beds rolled up and wicker partitions before them. I often saw Joseph's brothers talking with the servant maids and helping them in their work. But Joseph never interchanged words with them. He was always very reserved. I think there were also some daughters in the family. Joseph's parents were not well satisfied with him. They would have wished him, on account of his talents, to fit himself for a position in the world. But he was too unworldly for such aims. He had no desire whatever to shine. He may have been about twelve years old when I often saw him beyond Bethlehem, opposite the crib cave, praying with some very pious old Jewish women. They had an oratory hidden in a vault. I do not know whether these women were relatives of Joseph or not. I think that they were connected with Anne. Joseph often went to them in his troubles and shared their devotions. Sometimes he dwelt in their neighborhood with a master carpenter to whom he lent a helping hand. The carpenter taught him his trade, and Joseph found his geometry of use. The hostility of his brothers at last went so far that when eighteen, Joseph fled from his father's house by night. A friend who lived outside of Bethlehem had brought him clothes in which to make his escape. I saw him in Labona carrying on carpentry. He worked for his living in a very poor family. The man supported himself by making such rough wicker partitions as those Joseph knew how to put together. The latter humbly assisted the family as far as he could. I saw him gathering wood and carrying it to the house. His parents, in the meantime, believed that he had been kidnapped, but his brothers discovered him, and then he was again persecuted. Joseph, however, would not leave the poor people, nor desist from the humble occupation of which his family was ashamed. I saw him afterward in another place, Thanek. There he did better work for a well-to-do family. Though a small place, it had a synagogue. Joseph lived very piously and humbly, loved and esteemed by all. At last he worked for a man in Tiberias, at which place he lived alone near the water. Joseph's parents were long since dead, and his brothers scattered. Only two of them still dwelt in Bethlehem. The paternal mansion had passed into other hands, and the whole family had rapidly declined. Joseph was deeply pious. He prayed much for the coming of the Messiah. 
I noticed, too, his great reserve in the presence of females. Shortly before his call to Jerusalem for his espousals with Mary, he entertained the idea of fitting up a more secluded oratory in his dwelling. But an angel appeared to him in prayer and told him not to do it. That, as in ancient times, the patriarch Joseph became, by God's appointment, the administrator of the Egyptian granaries, so now to him was the granary of redemption to be wedded. In his humility, Joseph could not comprehend the meaning of this, and so he betook himself to prayer. At last he was summoned to Jerusalem to be espoused to the Blessed Virgin. There were seven other virgins who were with Mary to be dismissed from the temple and given in marriage. On this account, St. Anne went to Jerusalem to be with Mary, who grieved at the thought of leaving the temple. But she was told that she must be married. I saw one of the distinguished old priests, who was no longer able to walk, born into the Holy of Holies. An incense offering was enkindled. The priest prayed sitting before a roll of writings, and in vision his hand was placed upon that verse in the prophet Isaiah 11.1, in which it is written that there shall come forth a rod out of the root of Jesse, and a flower shall rise up out of his root. Thereupon I saw that all the unmarried men in the country of the house of David were summoned to the temple. Many of them made their appearance in a holiday attire, and Mary was conducted to their presence. I saw one among them, a very pious youth from the region of Bethlehem, who had always ardently prayed to be allowed to minister to the advent of the Messiah. Great was his desire to wed Mary, but Mary wept. She wished not, want, she wished not to take a husband. Then the high priest gave to each of the suitors a branch, which was to be held in the hand during the offering of prayer and sacrifice. After that, all the branches were laid in the Holy of Holies, with the understanding that he whose branch should blossom was to be Mary's husband. Now when that youth who was so ardently desired to wed Mary found that this branch, along with all the others, had failed to blossom, he retired to a hall outside the temple and, with arms raised to God, wept bitterly. The other suitors left the temple, and that youth hurried to Mount Carmel, where, since the days of Elias, hermits had dwelt. He took up his abode on the mount, and there spent his days in prayer for the coming of the Messiah. I saw the priests after this, hunting through different rolls of writing in their search for another descendant of the house of David, one that had not presented himself among the suitors for Mary's hand. And there they found that, among the six brothers of Bethlehem, one was unknown and ignored. They sought him out, and so discovered Joseph's retreat six miles from Jerusalem, near Samaria, it was a small place on a little river. There Joseph dwelt alone in a humble house near the water and carried on the trade of a carpenter under another master. He was told to go up to the temple. He went, accordingly, arrayed in his best. A branch was given him. As he was about to lay it upon the altar, it blossomed on top into a white flower like a lily. At the same time I saw a light like the Holy Spirit hovering over him. He was then led to Mary, who was in her chamber, and she accepted him as her spouse. The espousals took place, I think, upon our 23rd of January. They were celebrated in Jerusalem, on Mount Zion, in a house often used for such feasts. The seven virgins that were to leave the temple with Mary had already departed. 
they were recalled to accompany Mary on her festal journey to Nazareth, where Anne had already prepared her little home. The marriage feast lasted seven or eight days. The women and the virgins, companions of Mary in the temple, were present. Also many relatives of Joachim and Anne, and two daughters from Gophna. Many lambs were slaughtered and offered in sacrifice. I have had a clear vision of Mary in her bridal dress. She wore a colored woolen underdress without sleeves, her arms encircled by white woolen fillets. On the breast and as high as the neck lay a white collar ornamented with jewels, pearls, etc. Then came a kind of gown open in front, wide like a mantle from top to bottom, and with flowing sleeves. This gown was blue, embroidered with large red, white, and yellow roses and green leaves, something like the ancient vestments worn at Mass. It fastened around the neck on the white collar, and the lower border was edged with fringes and tassels. Over this was a kind of scapular of white and gold-flowered silk, set over the breast with pearls and shining stones. It lay upon the front opening of the dress, and reached to the edge of the same. It was about one half an ell wide, and was fringed with tassels and balls. A corresponding strip hung down the back, while shorter and narrower line ones fell over the shoulders and arms. These lappets were cut under the arms from front to back with the gold cords, or delicate chains, with which the broad upper piece of the bodice was fastened, as also the breast piece that was placed over the upper body. By this arrangement, the flowered stuff of the dress was puffed out between the cords. The wide sleeves were tightly fastened in the middle of the upper and the lower arm by buckles, puffing out around the shoulders, the elbows, and the wrists. Over this costume fell a long sky-blue mantle. It was fastened at the neck by an ornament, and over it was a white ruffle, seemingly of feathers or silk dots. The mantle fell back from the shoulders, forming a large fold on the sides, and hung behind in a pointed train. It was embroidered around the edge in flowers of gold. Mary's hair was arranged with such skill as is difficult to describe. It was parted on top of the head and divided into numerous fine strands, which were caught together with pearls and white silk. It formed a large net that fell over the shoulders and down the back to the middle of the mantle. It looked like a web. The ends of the hair were rolled in, and a whole net edged with fringe and pearls. On her head was placed first a wreath of white raw silk or wool, closing on top with three bands of the same meeting in a tuft. On this rested a crown about the breadth of one's hand set with many colored jewels. Three pieces arose from the circlet and met together in the center, where they were surmounted by a ball. In her left hand Mary carried a little garland of red and white roses made of silk, and in the right a beautiful candlestick, covered with gold. It had no foot, but was furnished like a scepter, with knobs above and below the point at which it was to be grasped by the hand. The stem began to swell out in the middle, and ended in a little dish upon which burned a white flame. On her feet she wore heavy sandals, about two fingers in thickness under which, before and behind, was a support like a heel. They were green and gave the foot the appearance of standing upon sods. Two straps, white and gold, went over the foot and held them in their place. The virgins at the temple arranged Mary's skillfully woven hairnet. I saw them thus engaged. 
There were many, many busied with it, and the work went more swiftly than one could imagine. Anne brought all the beautiful clothes, but Mary was so modest that it was only with reluctance that she allowed herself to be arrayed in them. After the nuptial ceremony, her braided hair was wound around her head, a milk-white veil reaching up to the elbows thrown over her, and the crown placed upon it. The Blessed Virgin had auburn hair, dark eyebrows, fine and arched, a very high forehead, large downcast eyes with long, dark lashes, straight nose, delicate and rather long, a lovely mouth around which played a most noble expression, and a pointed chin. She was of medium height, and she moved very gently and gravely, looking very bashful in her rich attire. After the marriage feast, she wore another dress. It was striped and less magnificent than the one described. I have a scrap of it among my relics. This striped dress she wore at Cana, and on other holy occasions. She wore her wedding suit once again in the temple. The very wealthy among the Jews changed their dress three or four times during a marriage feast. Mary, in her magnificent apparel, presented an appearance somewhat similar to the richly adorned women of a much later period, the Empress Helena, for instance, and even Cunegundus herself. The usual clothing of the Jewish women enveloped them closely, giving them an appearance of being wrapped up. But Mary's wedding dress was very different. It was something on the Roman style. Joseph wore a long, wide, blue coat, fastened from the breast down with loops and buttons. The wide sleeves were laced at the sides, the broad cuff turned up at the wrist, the inside provided, as it were, with pockets. Around the neck was something like a brown collar, over which lay a kind of stole, and upon the breast hung two white bands. After the marriage, Joseph went to Bethlehem on some business, and Mary, with twelve or fifteen women and maidens, went to Anne's house near Nazareth. They made the journey on foot. When Joseph returned, I saw at Anne's house a feast at which, besides the usual household, there were about six guests and several children present. Cups were on the table. The Blessed Virgin wore a mantle embroidered with red, white, and blue flowers. Her face was covered with transparent veil, over which was a black one. I afterwards saw Joseph and Mary in the house of Nazareth. Joseph had a separate apartment in the front of the house, a three-cornered chamber this side of the kitchen. Both Mary and Joseph were timid and reserved in each other's presence. They were very quiet and prayerful. Once I saw Anne making preparations to go to Nazareth. Under her arm she carried a bundle that contained some things for Mary. To reach Nazareth, which lay in front of a hill, she had to go over a plain and through a grove. Mary wept very much when Anne was leaving and accompanied her a part of the way. Joseph was alone in his apartment in the front of the house. Mary and Joseph had, properly speaking, no regular housekeeping affairs. They received from Anne all that they needed. I saw Mary spinning and sewing too, but yet with wide stitches. The clothes then worn had not many seams and were entirely in strips. I saw her embroidering also, and with little white sticks knitting or working. The cooking she did was very simple, and, while it was going on, the bread was baking in the ashes. They used sheep's milk, and of meat generally pigeons only. Part 2. The Holy House of Nazareth The little house at Nazareth, which Anne fitted up for Mary and Joseph, belonged to Anne. 
from her own dwelling, she could, unnoticed, reach it in about a half an hour by a cross path. It lay not far from the gate. It had a small courtyard in front, and nearby was a well, a couple of steps leading down to it. It was near a hill, but not built on it. A narrow path dug out of the hill separated it from the back of the house, in which there was one little window. It was darker on this side of the house than on the other. The back part was triangular and built on a higher ground than the front. The foundations were cut in the rock. The upper part was a light masonry. Mary's sleeping compartment was in the back, and there it was that the angelic annunciation took place. This chamber had a semicircular form, an account of the movable partitions placed around the walls, and which were of coarser wickerwork than that ordinarily used for the light screens. The patterns in which these screens were woven were similar to wafers, and the colors used were designed to bring the figures out. Mary's sleeping place was on the side just behind a wicker screen. On the left was a little closet with a small table and stool. This was the Blessed Virgin's oratory. This back room was separated from the rest of the house by a fireplace, which consisted of a grated wall from whose center over the slightly raised hearth a chimney rose up to the front roof and ended in a tube above it. Over the opening through which the tube projected was built a little roof. On top of the chimney, I saw in after years two little bells hanging. To the right and left of the chimney, an opening into Mary's rooms, were doors up to which three steps led. In the chimney wall were all kinds of nooks in which stood the little vessels that I still see at Loretto. Behind was a rafter of cedar wood, upon which the wall of the chimney rested. From this upright rafter ran a crossbeam to the center of the back wall, and into this there were others dovetailed from the two side walls. These beams were of a bluish cast with yellow ornaments. Between them one could see up through the roof, which was hung with large leaves and matting, and in three places, namely in the three corners, adorned with stars. The star in the middle corner was large, like the morning star. Later on, the ceiling was adorned with numerous stars. Over the horizontal rafter, which extended from the chimney to the back of the wall, was an opening in the center for the window, and under this was hung a lamp. There was a rafter under the chimney also. The roof was not high and pointed, but so level that one might walk around the edge. It was flat on top, and there arose the chimney with its tubes, protected by the little roof. When after Joseph's death, the Blessed Virgin removed to the neighborhood of Capernaum. The holy house was left beautifully adorned like a sacred shrine. Mary often went from Capernaum to visit the scene of the Incarnation and to pray there. Peter and John, whenever they went to Palestine, visited the house of Nazareth and celebrated Mass in it. An altar was erected where the fireplace used to be. The little cupboard once used by Mary was placed as a tabernacle upon the altar. I have often envisioned witness the transporting of the holy house to Loretto. For a long time I could not believe it, and yet I continued to see it. I saw the holy house borne over the sea by seven angels. It had no foundation, but there was under it a shining surface of light. On either side was something like a handle. Three angels carried it on one side, and three on the other. The seventh hovered in front of it, a long train of light after him. I remember that it was the back of the house, 
the part that contained the fireplace, the altar of the apostles, and the little window that was transported to Europe. It seems to me when I recall it that the rest of the building was in some danger of falling. I see in Loretto the crucifix also that the Blessed Virgin had when in Ephesus. It was formed of different kinds of wood. Later on, it came into the possession of the apostles. Many miracles take place before that crucifix. The wall of the holy house of Loretto is entirely the original one. Even the rafter under the chimney is still in its place. The miraculous picture of the Mother of God stands on the altar of the apostles. <laughs>